while you're getting your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 27 this morning. It's not even a continuation of the thought. It is, in fact, we're going to take a few weeks this summer and partner, if you will, with our group Bible study content. And, and look, as we survey some of these New Testament texts, I won't be preaching the Sunday school lesson, you'll know better than that, but I will be sharing some expository preaching from the passages. Why? Because there's something powerful when the church is all united together. Those daily discipleship guides that you have, that you get to feast on God's word throughout the week and we're all doing the same thing. It can come up in casual conversation. It can come up around the dinner table, all ages from our youngest to our oldest. That's the reason we do it the way we do it. Trust can be something difficult to come by this day and age, though. I mean, who can you trust? I think over the last year and a half, I don't know if trust in news outlets for you was shaken, if it hadn't already been, or, or maybe there was trust issues you had with, ready, medical advice, and I Cannot use the air quotes there enough. I'm not, of course, speaking of the medical community with trained professionals. I'm speaking of your Facebook friend who read an article and suddenly was the expert on all things medical. Yes? Can I get a witness? Nobody? Just me. Or with, again, the, the air quotes, science. Yes? It's almost as if science has become its own new religion. It's actually not a new thing. People worship at the altar of science regularly. It's, it's hard to know who to trust these day and age. Trust is difficult to come by. You think about your relationships. Don't think about culture and, and how we can easily vilify and, and demonize anything we don't agree with. Think about your friends. You have acquaintances. You have workplace associates. You have friends. You have close friends. Studies suggest that while we're capable of knowing up to, brace yourself, about 225 people pretty well, I am woefully behind on that. Um, our inner circle of deep relationships, actually, we have capacity for between 10 to 15 of those. 12 is kind of a good number. I think we've got a model for that in Scripture. Jesus did really tight community with, I don't know, 12? That's between 10 and 15, I think. You get the picture. Think about those people that are in that category for you, close friends, or people maybe moving toward that category. First off, let's just take an aside. Do you have one close friend? Do you? Can you think of, maybe take a moment and just thank God for that person. Let's do that. Pastors are bad at that. We'll tell you to do like 45 things in a sermon. You don't have time to do any of them. Like, what were we supposed to do? Right now, just thank the Lord for that close friend that you can trust. What a gift from God. Now, let's think about that group that's in that closer friends thing. Do you trust them all the same? They're all close friends. Do you trust them all the same? Would you tell all of them the same amount of information about yourself? Or do you guard yourself around this friend? Do you have a friend that is faster than social media to publish something when you tell them? Like, if you need the word to get out, you tell this friend. If you need a secret, you maybe don't tell that friend. You love them, they're a close friend, but you get the picture. We, we trust folks based on their trustworthiness, don't they? Trust is kind of a two-sided issue. It requires trusting. We've got to be trusting. We can't hang on to everything. But the person we're trusting has to be trustworthy. 
When somebody makes a promise to us, we either hang on to it tightly or loosely based on their trustworthiness. Think back with me, please, to the wonderful theological example of Charlie Brown and Lucy. Lucy, time and time again, would hold the football for Charlie. He's in the frame way off, and Charlie's over to the side, and he says, I'm not going to kick it. She says, kick it, Charlie. I'll hold it. He says, you're not going to hold it. You're going to move it as soon as I get there. Somehow, she convinces him, right? And with a little trepidation, he says, all right. He runs. You've got the picture. Kicks. There's my sound effect, right? Kicks the ball. No, kicks at the ball. The ball's been snatched away. He does the little twirl. You see the arg as he falls and injures himself. And Lucy then looks at him and says, why would you trust me? (laughs) Trustworthiness. Some people just never learn. Just this week, I was looking at data from a recent study that indicated more than half of adults who are unchurched do not have a deep trust of Christian pastors. For those of you who are Christians, whether you're online or in the pew this morning, do you remember when you first trusted Christ. When you first put your faith and trust in him, what a day. Now you may not remember exactly the day on the calendar, but there is a BC, right, a before Christ in your life. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's, it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Look at that for just a moment. Even the faith that you needed to trust God was a gift from God. That's remarkable. To think that the God of all creation who knew everything you'd ever done, every thought you've ever had, every word you'd ever said, and the ones you didn't have the courage to speak, knew you and still loved you, invited you, convicted you, changed your life, moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Why? Because he's trustworthy. God is not a man, the scripture says, that he should lie nor the son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The New Testament tells us there's no variation. There's no shadow due to change. We trust God. God is absolutely trustworthy. Great intro. What does that have to do with Acts 27? Saul of Tarsus. That's who Paul was before he was Paul liked the churchy things, liked the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day did things, didn't like that Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and set out to persecute those. He volunteered to persecute Christ's followers on behalf of the religious leaders of the day. He volunteered, he signed up for this. I'll drag them out of their homes. I'll see that they're beaten if they won't recant. I'll make sure they pay for following Jesus. This is the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, y'all. You know what that gives me hope for as an aside? For those revilers and persecutors that were out at the abortion mill yesterday yelling insults at us, trying to distract us, they are not beyond the reach of God transforming their life. In fact, there's testimony after testimony of folks coming from that side to loving life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Saul of Tarsus, but on his way to Damascus to fulfill marching orders to go after the Christians, the Christ followers there, he has an encounter with Jesus 
And when Saul met Jesus, he immediately changed his posture. Uh, he fell off his horse, and that's not a, I mean, that's not a, I'm not trying to be cute there. He actually fell off his horse. <laughs> Let me just tell you, when you really have an encounter with Christ, you'll fall off your horse too. You'll recognize you, you're not even qualified to drive anywhere. You, you don't know how to pilot anything. You've been heading the wrong direction. He was blinded to everything around him. He, he spent days in prayer working it out. This wasn't an emotional moment in a service where he came forward and repeated a prayer. He took days to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. And then he learned something interesting. While he was there, while the, God had had this other man of God come and speak to him and he's in the house. While he's there, God sends a messenger to him and here's what the Lord says in Acts 19 and 15. Watch this. God says to him, Acts 9, 15 and 16, but the Lord says to him, go, he's telling his servant that's gonna go speak to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Watch this in verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I've given some pretty difficult invitations and some pretty bold invitations before in my life. I don't believe I can be accused of being easy believism pastor. Like, if you'll just say, a, just repeat this mantra after me, right? I, that's not me. But, but I don't know that I, I've ever seen a less seeker-friendly invitation than that. You wanna follow me? Let me show you what you're gonna suffer as a result of saying yes. So much for lowering the bar of entry. But this is Paul's conversion. He receives a new vision, a new outlook. He literally got his sight back. He gets up, he gets baptized, and he begins proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the hope for all humanity. Saul, the destroyer, had become the declarer. The misguided had become the missional. The foolish was now wise. The agitator had become the peacemaker. This is good preaching stuff here. I can go on. I got a whole list of these things, right? Here's the, the point. He was changed, dramatically changed. So was I when God radically saved my life. Filthy mouthed and filthy minded. At 16 years old, I had a rep and it was not because of my intimidating physique. I had a reputation and God radically saved me. So much so that the Sunday after I came to know him and surrendered my life to him as Lord and Savior, I was unrecognizable on the phone to a close friend I had spoken to just three days before. God can do that. You don't have a loved one that's too far. God can save them. God can save the chief of sinners in Paul. He can do a work. As a result of this, Paul had great faith in God. I'm laying the groundwork to get to the storm. All throughout his missionary journeys, we see his faith in action. We know the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible says that faith is the substance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is faith in this age of constantly changing definitions? God help us. Let me tell you what faith is. It's right there. It is believing. It's trusting before you can see. By the way, reading your Bible and hearing the Bible read and actively listening to the preached word is a great way, a surefire way to strengthen your faith. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you get into the word regularly, you're gonna like the way you faith. I guarantee it. Hashtag men's warehouse. Nobody? 
Paul trusted God completely. He trusted God fully. And we're going to see that play out in our text this morning. How in the world did we wind up on this boat with Paul in Acts 27? Well, the first thing I want to bring your attention to is we're going to notice the plan that was in place. Now, this picks up last week in your Bible study. You studied the message, actually the passage leading up to this in your Bible study groups that you had. You're going to notice the plan there. Last week, you realized that God was completely in control. Even though Paul had not violated Roman law, the governor and the king had both declared Paul innocent. Now, let me just do a little quiz here. Uh, do I have any students, any middle school, high school, or elementary students that can remember, remember the names of the two rulers in last week's Bible study lesson that we're dealing with Paul here? Booyah, from the balcony. You know, in the Muppets, the balcony was always harassing them, but I love our balcony here, don't you? Always the right answer. So here we have two leaders that are saying, you know what, if you would have actually not appealed to Rome, we could have let you go, but we've got to send you to Rome. But it was God's will that he went to Rome. They declared him innocent, but they had to send him to Rome, and he had to go in chains because he was a prisoner. That's what's happening here in 27. Paul is headed back to Rome just like the Lord said he was going to. Here's a couple of things going out. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm not going to put all the notes on the screen for you, just the main headers and a little bit at the end, but if you're taking notes, you can write it out on the note sheet you got in or follow along online. You'll see that Paul is detained in the first three verses. I'm going to hasten through the story here. Go back and read this whole passage yourself. It'll encourage you. Paul's detained. He and the other prisoners were put into chains and taken to Italy. Julius is a captain of Caesar's army. He was responsible for Paul and for the prisoners. In verses four through eight, he warns of danger. He tells them a storm is coming. He says, hey guys, there's a storm coming. Paul wasn't promised a smooth ride to get to Rome. He wasn't promised a straight line. He wasn't promised clear skies to God's perfect will for his life. And neither were you. In fact, if somebody told you once you said yes to Jesus that everything was gonna work out and be okay and life was gonna be all a bucket of smiles, I'm sorry that you were lied to. Because you don't find that in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean we walk around like this all the time, right? Um, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm a Christian. I just believe the truth. All tribulation. No, there's victory, there's hope, there's joy because we fix our eyes on Jesus. But we're also not disillusioned about the journey, are we? Paul warns them of danger. We weren't promised a smooth ride. In fact, the psalmist said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Praise God. Paul warns them, but guess what they did? They disregard the warning. Look in your Bibles at Acts 27 as you're getting to verses 10 and 11. Let's look at it together. Verses 10 and 11 in Acts 27. Paul's warned them, and then the Bible says, look what he says. Sir, I perceive that the voyage we're going to be on will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, you and I look at that differently than they did. Let's have a moment. We're looking at this going, this is Paul, the apostle. Y'all better listen to what he says. Right? 
This is a guy that wrote most of the New Testament. He knows what he's talking about. Can you just step with me into this moment, though? This is a prisoner in chain saying to his captor, hey, I don't think we should go to Rome. There's a storm coming. No reason that the, the guard goes, oh, okay, I'm going to talk to the, the captain of the boat and let, let's see what the, uh, the officials and the experts have to say. So I, I don't necessarily slight them for doing this. Paul urges them to lighten the ship to keep it from sinking. They refuse to listen to his advice. Listen, history is full of examples of unheeded warnings. I, I had a list of so many to give you this morning. Time won't permit. Let me give you one. The crew of the Masaba. That's a lovely name, isn't it? The Masaba. This is the crew who radioed the Titanic of icebergs two hours before they got there. The Masaba sailed through the same waters that the Titanic was heading for, that fateful iceberg collision, and sent out a warning of icebergs to every ship in the region. The crew of the Titanic received the message, but the radio operator didn't think it was important enough to send to the captain because he had messages for paying customers that were waiting to hear more important things. History is full of unheeded warnings. Parents, you could write a book this week probably of unheeded warnings at home. I told you if you did it one more time, right? Paul had warned them a storm was coming. They didn't pay any attention. Jesus promised that in this world we'd have tribulation, but some of us are disillusioned when trouble comes. We're like, what is this? What is going on, God? Why is this happening to me? Because he promised it would. Second thing that happens, a massive storm. The middle part of Acts 27 is about this massive storm that comes. This is a terrible storm, and there appears to be no hope in verses 14 through 17. This is not an afternoon thunderstorm in the Queen City. This is akin to a typhoon-style winds that have overtaken them. They throw out many of the things on board. Look at verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could face, they could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven alone. Would you look at that? It was caught up in the storm so much they had to take their hands off of guiding the ship and just say, it's going to have to take us where it takes us. We're going to tear the ship up if we keep trying to fight the storm. Maybe you feel like that's where you are this morning. Caught up in a storm. I'm not talking about a little problem or a little inconvenience or something. I mean a storm, a major storm. You've just about had to give up and give in and say, I, I can't do anything else with this. I've got to let go. The old timers would say, let go and let God have his way. But you don't feel like it's God having its way. You feel like the storm is driving you instead of you driving through the storm. If that's not you right now, praise the Lord. But I dare say, if you peeked into the rearview mirror of your Christian experience, or you looked far enough down the road through the windshield, you'd see possibly there's one coming. I'm not here to discourage you this morning, but to encourage you. The text will get there in just a moment. The reality of the promise of John 16.33 is this. If we put our hope in the storm passing, we're going to be disappointed. If we put our eyes in the circumstances and why do they have it good and I don't have it good or are they more faithful to God? That, no, Jesus said, I'm gonna give you peace. The world's gonna give you tribulation. 
But take heart, be of good cheer, take courage. I have overcome the world. Wow. We fix our eyes on the overcomer. There's a really bad storm. There's a real testing of faith here. Look at verse 20 with me as we hasten through the account. In verse 20, the Bible says, There was neither sun nor stars that appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, I know, I I don't want to put this on you. Forget the fact that I'm a preacher. I've been radically saved and transformed by the power of God since I was 16 years old. I was a teenager when the Lord changed my life, saved me, moved me from the kingdom of darkness into his king, the kingdom of his marvelous light. So I've been saved. That was, I was 16 in. I'm 44 now. All these years, following the Lord, walking with God, stumbling, bumbling, and fumbling, doing all those things too, but still walking with God, trusting God. Can I tell you though, I know better than to lose hope, but there are moments when I feel hope fleeting. They had abandoned all hope of being saved. They knew that there was no way out of the storm. There was darkness, darker than dark. They couldn't see anything. They had lost their bearings. One writer notes beautifully, this storm, this kind of storm produces sorrow, sickness, suffering. All of those would have been believable on a boat in this type of storm. You don't need to be a sailor to get the picture of grown men hanging over the side of the boat, do you? Whatever type of major storm in any of our lives, whether deep sorrow or major sickness or unbearable suffering or maybe all three at one time, I'm thinking about our precious friend, Pastor Oscar. I went back and looked at some of the notes This saga began with him at the end of February. There's so many in this room this morning that I've had the privilege of walking through some deep waters with just in the last two and a half years that I've been here. We've walked through some things together. But here's what I love about this church family and what I love about people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and love his word. We would testify along with the prophet Isaiah that when we passed through the waters, God was with us. And when we passed through the rivers, they would not overwhelm us. We could walk through fire and not be burned. The flame would not consume you. Why? The verse goes on to say, I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, am your Savior. So there's the storm. It's a real storm. This is not some little afternoon shower. This is a major storm. Now let's finish our time this morning looking at the peace that comes. Your third note this morning, peace from God's word. This is the final point this morning. By the way, since there was no official sermon last week, I'm preaching twice as long this morning to make up for that, to scratch that itch for some of you. Remember, we established that trust is a two-way street It requires trusting and trustworthiness. I'm not, by the way. Four of you just like closed your Bibles about ready to leave. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Trusting and trustworthiness. And I told you, Paul was a great man of faith, but he was still a man. God is absolutely trustworthy. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
Look at the elements that brought peace about in this situation, and I think it could be a recipe for you if you are in the middle of the storm. And you know what? If you're not in a storm, this is one of those good recipe cards to fill out, stick in your pocket to pull out for when the storm comes. Here's the first thing I would note. There is a promise. If you're taking notes out by verse 22, I would write down this. There's a promise. It's a text we we read earlier in the service. Pastor Norm led us in that. Paul had faith that everything was going to be all right, not because he was some great hero of the faith, but because he had a promise from God. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Side note. Take your pen under take heart, and if you're an underliner, underline those two words. If you're a circler, circle them. But mark those two words in some way. Yet now I urge you, verse 22, to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So, verse 25, pen back out, please. Take heart. You see it again? Take heart. He begins and finishes. He sandwiches this promise from God with take heart. For I have faith in God. Some translations say it. I love the emphatic saying in the NASB, the King James. I believe God. I believe God that it'll be exactly as I have been told. Twice he uses the phrase take heart. Remember John 16, 33? Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There the rendering means take courage. Here the word the root of this word, it's used one other place. You'll see it in a moment. It means have good cheer. Be cheerful. Cheerful? I'm sorry? The storm is, is about to rip the boat apart. Be cheerful? Okay, preacher man. I know that's how you feel about me sometimes. That's how I felt about preachers sometimes. But when you're tied in and knit into the word of God and you know God's word is true, you can take heart when everything around you is falling apart. When the lightning flashes, God is still trustworthy. When the thunder crashes so loud that it rattles the whole ship, you can still believe God. When the waves are crashing all around you and you don't know what to do, you can't even see what's ahead of you or beside you. Here's some things you can know. God is still on the throne. God is still all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. Jesus Christ is still seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest praying for you. And whether you make it out of the storm alive or not, you can still be saved because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let the storm rage high. Let the dark clouds rise. They won't worry me for I am sheltered, safe within the arms of God. You can't live like that unless you have the word of God in you. Because your emotions will lie to you. Now, they're a gift from God, but your emotions will trick you in a storm into believing something that's not true. You're like, I just don't feel God here. I don't necessarily feel God every time I get up in the morning. Some mornings are very early. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God says. The second thing I would note here is that peace requires patience. That's not a dirty word. Sometimes uh, some older church folk in my life used to say, now don't pray for patience because you'll get tribulation. Newsflash, tribulation's coming anyway. You better pray for patience. (laughs) It's a suggestion there. 
Patience, peace requires patience. After 14 nights of storm, 14 nights of no food, 14 nights of peril and darkness. Man, the AC acts up on us for 10 minutes and we're ready to call a prayer chain. These are 14 nights of we're going to die and we're without hope, except Paul. He says, be of good cheer. They barely would have had the strength to whisper the song, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. That's, that verse probably would have made them mad. You ever had somebody sing a song to you or send you a verse, right? You're having a really bad day, and God's word is life, but sometimes it cuts a little too close to home, and they send you a verse, and it just kind of ticks you off a little bit. It's okay. We're, we're family. It happens. It just, you go like, I, I don't appreciate that, right? And then you work through the issues, you realize it's exactly what you need. But I, I don't imagine Paul belted out a tune of standing on the promises. And don't tell me because it hadn't been written yet. Don't break down the illustration for me, okay? Let me have a moment. To be honest, sometimes the storm's so bad, it's hard for us to sing. If you need peace, especially when you're in the thick of the storm, that's when I want to introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit, one of those is patience. And when he's leading and guiding and directing us, even when everything's falling apart, we can have patience that glorifies him. Paul tells him to stay on the ship. There's a sense of we're all in this together. It's a good reminder for us. God has called us into community. That's a separate sermon, but here's the deal. You can get through a storm better with the people of God around you. It takes promise. It takes patience. And it takes us acting on the plan of God. Verses 33 through 35. Since the Lord is trustworthy, Paul trusted the Lord as a, a man of faith. Paul, with great patience, put into plan an action based on the fact that God was God. Now all 276 people on board finally get to eat. He said, let's eat, let's get some strength. Paul first prays for the food, gives thanks to God for the safekeeping and for the food. Now this is not a church service. He's leading prayer for these folks. After he prays, I want you to notice this, verse 36, then they were all encouraged would you underline or circle or however you mark to take heart take that pen back out and mark encouraged they were all encouraged they were all encouraged then they ate you say well of course they were encouraged they ate no 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 they were encouraged then they ate right i know how church folk are we are all encouraged after we eat yes encouraged to have some dessert um but these men were encouraged and then they took some food for themselves that word encouraged, by the way, same root word as take heart before. This is why preachers nerd out on languages, why they make us study this stuff in seminary, because we can go, like we're like this in our study, and you guys are like, great point, next please. But be of good cheer? The boat's falling apart? We're of good cheer, right? Come on, this is incredible. Let's look at these last couple of verses as we see the final point this morning. Peace flows from God's protection. Verse 39, take your Bibles, hold them in your hand. If you don't have them with you, watch on the screen. Now, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned it possible to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, 
The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the stir. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them swim away and escape. What? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Wow. Listen. Whoever said the Bible was boring hasn't read the Bible. These soldiers said they were going to kill the prisoners. Why? Because their lives depended on their delivery. They were accountable for them with their lives. It was self-preservation, but the centurion had taken an interest in Paul. He had taken an interest in Paul. Why? Because Paul said at the beginning, hey, there's a storm that's going to cause us trouble. You ever wonder why you get to say some things and it seems like nobody listens? You're like, well, why did I even say that? What, what was the point of that? God has a purpose and a plan for truth. You may not always get to see the immediate fruit of it, but he uses that for his glory and for the safekeeping of his people. Process this journey. God told Paul he was going to minister in Rome. God ordained the ministry, but it wasn't a straight path, an easy journey, or clear skies, or a painless experience to get there. God used a wrongful conviction to send Paul to Rome. God used a storm to carry him 600 miles west of Crete. God used a spark of interest in a centurion because of something Paul said about the weather to spare Paul's life. God used Paul's influence on a prisoner ship to fulfill exactly what he said. The ship would be destroyed, it would run aground, and no one would perish. Now, they didn't land on Rome yet. They landed on Malta, which is about 60 miles south of Sicily, but it got them closer than they would have gotten otherwise. It's pretty remarkable how the Lord did it. What about you this morning? What about the unusual storm that seems like it is totally out of control in your life? Is it out of control? You say, well, I'm out of control. Is it out of God's control? I imagine Joseph probably felt a little bit of that when he was in the pit thrown there by his brothers. And then his circumstance turns around. He got a blessing. He's now serving right where he's supposed to be serving. And then he gets thrown into prison. Thinking, what am I doing wrong? I imagine Daniel probably felt like it was out of control as he was being escorted to a den of lions. I don't think he knew exactly how that would turn out. I imagine the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we all know them, Shadrach. Even though they had great faith and said, our God will deliver us, but if not, we're still not going to bow the knee. I imagine as they said that, if they were having to say that to each other as they're being carried to the fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than it was normally heated. Paul, in the midst of a storm, said, I believe God because he's trustworthy. Do you trust God like that? If you do, and I know some of you that do, find somebody on a pew near you that doesn't and encourage them. Put your arm around them while they're being tossed about by the waves and the winds of this world and encourage them. If you don't trust God like that, I've got news for you. You can. God is the lover of your soul. He's the one that creates faith. 
God wants you to strengthen your faith. How do I strengthen my faith, preacher? Well, by having a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. By repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in him and following him. By reading his word, hearing his word, studying his word, meditating on his word, memorizing his word. By being in a tight-knit community of believers through the local church. By putting your faith into action. By actually leaving the building and being the church. All of these things will strengthen your faith. It's the kind of faith that rests not on the strength of your faith, but on the strength and the trustworthiness of God himself. It's a kind of experience where you can take heart and be encouraged and be cheerful though the winds and the waves rage around you. Cling to God's word. As Julia comes this morning, just to play and give you a moment to respond to that. The musicians will come as well and get ready to lead us in some songs. I want you to stay seated for just a moment while they're coming. What's your promise that you would cling to? I mean, you're not probably going to be on a ship on the way to Rome and have an angel of God dispatched to talk to you on a boat. I doubt that's going to happen. If it does, please take a picture and put that on YouTube. That's pretty remarkable. I don't know that it's going to go down like that. But what's the promise that you would cling to? How about this one? There's so many, but how about this one? God speaking, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How about the Holy Spirit producing that patience that you need? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. How do we put a plan in place like we believe it? Well, we walk in the Spirit and not the flesh. We stop meditating on everything around us and we start meditating on the eternal truths from God's word like this. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. How will God get you through the storm that you're in? Well, by you turning your eyes on Jesus. Take a moment. Ask the Lord to do a deep and abiding work in you for the storms of life. Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We put our trust, our faith, and our hope in you, not on our circumstances changing, not on things getting better, Lord. We're grateful for when they do, but we are conscious of the fact that you are faithful even when things are falling apart. Lord, help us to trust you. And for those of us who are not in the throes of that type of storm today, praise God. I pray that we would be an encouragement to those who are Give us eyes to see the hurting and broken that need encouragement from your word. We bless you. We love you. We thank you for your word this morning in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. Let's all stand together.